Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. A couple of weeks ago, we ran a five-part special series called The Power of Populism, its global reach, authoritarian threat, and democratic promise. And the series generated a ton of interest and feedback from listeners. And by the way, if you haven't heard the entire series just yet, you can at onpointradio.org or in your podcast feed. Just subscribe to On Point if you haven't already. Now, in that populism series, we presented this startling fact. Only 4% of the world's people live in countries that are becoming more democratic. Just 4%. Meanwhile, more than a third of people are living in countries that are becoming more autocratic. Here's economist Pranab Bardhan. All over the world, um, inequality has been rising, and in some countries it's reached grotesque levels. Inequality has produced strong reaction. But I personally think while inequality is extremely important, the way the workers are moving toward these uh, populist demagogues, most often right-wing extreme demagogues, it is not just inequality. Uh, because, you know, inequality is a left-wing issue. And the question is, why are people turning right instead of left? In order to understand that question, you have to grapple with cultural issues and both economic insecurity, but also I talk about cultural insecurity. Well, Professor Bardhan spoke about that in an hour where we focused on populism in India. So we didn't actually have adequate time to dig deeply into the roots of cultural insecurity around the world. So today... That's what we're going to do. And Professor Bardhan is back with us. His book is A World of Insecurity, Democratic Disenchantment in Rich and Poor Countries. Professor Bardhan, welcome back to On Point. Thank you, Magna. Okay, so um, the fact that we're seeing so much cultural insecurity uh, around the world is really why we wanted to, to bring you back here. So I, I hope today to define what you mean by cultural insecurity and then work towards a point where we can figure out if there's anything that we can do about it to turn back this uh, autocratic tide that's rising um, on planet Earth. So, so first of all, how would you distinguish, Professor, between what you identify as economic insecurity around the world and cultural insecurity. Yes. Um, economic insecurity, of course, is very important. I mean, obviously, if you lose your job, <laughs> that's a big thing in your life. Um, uh, culture can wait. <laughs> but uh, economic, if economic insecurity was the main issue, then there are uh, cases. I can give you examples. Let me take give you the example of Sweden. Mm. In Sweden... Is, is somewhat an exception to the most of the rich countries. Um, the data show that if you take 25 of the mo richest countries, um, in on an average, about 60% of the households, sometimes even more, 65% of the households, had either stagnant income, where income didn't change, or falling income. So that's obviously an indicator of economic insecurity. Sweden did not have that. So mm -hmm. Sweden, that, that percentage was about 20%. Yet, as you know, very recently, in fact, after my book came out, 
uh, in late uh, 2022. After that, Sweden had an election in which uh, the, not merely the leading party is, is the right-wing party, but it's backed by an extreme right-wing party with neo-Nazi uh, roots. Mm. Uh, so this is happening in Sweden, which a relatively economically secure country. Uh, workers don't have falling or stagnant income as much uh, like the other countries. And and if, even so, it happened in Sweden. So that tells you that it's not just economic secure, insecurity. Mm. And the culture, main cultural insecurity issue, of course, uh, by these extreme right-wing parties is about immigration. Okay. Um, so can we actually, so is, and, and, and that is the case in Sweden too, I'd love to pursue the Swedish example a little further. What what were those extreme right-wing parties saying that made them so successful in the election? Well, essentially is that Sweden, as you know, for a long time, it's a small country, relatively small country, certainly compared to the United States, but it's a relatively homogeneous population. Mm-hmm. Unlike the United States, it's really much more uh, compact, homogeneous in terms of ethnicity, uh, language, and all, all the other characteristics. And here, the immigrants started coming, and Sweden being social democrat, they had been, uh, for a long time, they had been quite liberal in terms of their immigration policies. And the, it, in reaction to that, in reaction to this coming of, quote-unquote, culturally alien people, uh, that's what the reaction came. And these parties, particularly this extreme uh, Sweden Democrat Party, that's the name of the party, uh, the extreme right party, uh, they were essentially saying that our culture is at stake and that's what we have to do something about. And in a sense, what has happened, it's not just the extreme right-wing party, and this has happened all over Scandinavia, not just uh, Sweden, where the uh, even the mainstream parties are now uh, adopting some of these anti-immigration policies and certainly anti-immigration rhetoric. Uh, so they have they are internalizing this uh, protests mm. and this sense of alienation that the, much of the population is feeling. Mm. That's whether it's rightly or wrongly, that's a different issue. Yeah, I was just going to say that I'm sure listeners uh, listening right now would love us to actually enter into a conversation about the uh, the benefits of or drawbacks of immigration specifically. We unfortunately that's not today's today's focus um, <laughs> right. because uh, there's obviously much to be said about the the positive effects of immigration. But sure. but um, to your point. Um, it is a source of, well, actually, I, I don't want to call it a source. It is one of the factors that's playing into this in, increase of in cultural insecurity, as you call it. So, again, yeah. sticking with the Swedish example, though, is the cultural insecurity here? I mean, how do we define what culture is? Is it race? Is it is it religion? What is it? What is the culture that the Swedish uh, right wing uh, is seeking to protect? Yes, Um I think it's not so much religion, but yes, religion plays a role. And this is particularly because, uh, for example, uh, the average Swedish citizen would um, uh, would react differently to a Polish plumber coming in compared to a Muslim uh, mason coming mm-hmm. in. Uh, uh, because they, they bring different cultural practices and sometimes different gender norms uh, and, uh, and, and different, um, different habits, different ways of bringing up children and things like that. And, 
And that's what creates uh, what I'm calling cultural insecurity. It's a, it's a kind of anxiety. And the anxiety is exacerbated because people have quite often, not just in Sweden, all over the world, people have an exaggerated notion about how many immigrants there are. Mm -hmm. in, ge in general, surveys show that when they ask people, what do you think is the number of uh, proportion of immigrants in the population? Uh, the numbers are far, far exaggerated, several times the actual numbers. So that is also uh, kind of uh, heightens the anxiety that I'm talking about. So this is a very, very important point, right? Because you could say that in the case of economic security, there's a you know, there's a very real data set that's generating the insecurity in people's lives, right? They know how much money they're making or not making, right? They can right. they can see if the way they're growing up is better or worse than the way their parents or grandparents did. But when right. it comes to issues of cultural insecure, uh, culture insecurity or the, th the threat posed by changes in culture, I mean, are we... Are we talking more about a perceived threat versus an, an actual threat? Oh, very much so, very much so. Uh, in fact, um, uh, there are two issues. Uh, let me mention, immigration is not just a cultural issue, it's an economic issue. So yes. there is a threat of uh, your j jobs being at stake. But quite often, uh, immigrants do jobs which the native population in general don't. Um, quite often, immigrants uh, bring positive economic benefits, but those things uh, pale into insignificance when you think about these cultural issues of cultural anxiety, and that's where they exaggerate the numbers, and they also exaggerate the intergenerational effects. What I mean is that the immigrants quite often in the next generation are, are very much adapted to the local local culture. So it's, it's a, quite often a transitory issue in terms of the different culture that they bring. But those things uh, people don't keep in mind because meanwhile, these demagogues keep on uh, exaggerating, keep on, uh, keep on uh, bringing issues, how they are immediately threatened and things like that. Mm. And that's where the, uh, the role of the populist demagogues uh, exaggerating the perception that you were talking about. It is a perceived issue, no doubt about that. Right. Well, so the, to your point about that uh, second and third generation children and grandchildren of immigrants do become uh, quickly assimilated, assimilated, quote unquote, for lack of a better term, uh, in places like like the United States. I mean, I just want to emphasize to folks that that, that is very clear. We actually even did a show uh, last year, I believe, that showed that, you know, after one generation, there's there's almost perfect language assimilation amongst uh, the children of immigrants and uh, and the other aspects of the dominant culture become very normalized in the, in these families. So even with but even with that being the case, uh, Professor Bardan, you're describing a, 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 re, a situation around the world, and especially yes. we'll focus on developed countries here, where the right. truth of that sort of um, uh, the the truth that there is no cultural threat is somehow evaporated, <laughs> and and people's fears are continued seemingly continue to rise year after year. We've just got about thirty yes. seconds before our first break. Yeah, so that's what the great replacement theory, there is yes. this fear that immigrants and others uh, the uh, and minorities are going to uh, uh, overpower in numbers 
uh, the, the rest of the population. Mm. Well, today we're talking with Professor Pranab Bardhan. He's a distinguished professor at the University of California, Berkeley, author of many books. His most recent is A World of Insecurity, Democratic Disenchantment in Rich and Poor Countries. And we're really focusing on this concept of cultural insecurity that he uh, explores in the book, what's driving it, why it's really taking hold in developed nations, and we'll eventually talk about what to do about it. More in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today Pranab Bardhan joins us once again. He's author of A World of Insecurity, Democratic Disenchantment in Rich and Poor Countries. And we're really trying to understand with the professor today the roots of cultural insecurity and the role that plays in the decline or weakening of democracies uh, around the world. So, Professor Bardhan, if... If I understand you correctly, you're calling cultural insecurity this experience or or expression of uh, when people believe their their culture, their their race, their gender, their religion, what 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 have you, are under threat by so, supposed uh, outsiders. But can you then link that to a to a more directly on how that's contributing to the decline or weakening of democracies as we've been seeing, uh, you know, in the past decade or so? Yes, um, these populist demagogues who are utilizing these anxieties, uh, harvesting uh, the, the, the result of these anxieties. And by the way, immig- I gave immigration as an example. In other countries, uh, including in rich countries, but in, 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 in developing countries, religious tensions mm-hmm. is a very a, extremely important issue. Now, all of this are, we, uh, are, are, being, uh, are weaving into a sense of ethnic nationalism. Right. So, uh, and and that's where religion become plays an important role. So, Christian nationalism, say in Poland, in the United uh, Catholic nationalism in Poland, uh, in the United States, Brazil, 
It's more like uh, evan- Christian evangelical nationalism. Well, I'd say it's white Christian evangelical nationalism. Uh, yes, yeah. white Christian. In Brazil, actually, it's not necessarily white, uh, but it's Christian evangelism. Yeah, so in, in the United uh, States, it's particularly, I think, among white, white Christian uh, evangelicals. Uh, yeah, go right, ahead. Right, right. And similarly, in in uh, Erdogan's uh, Turkey, it's Islamic nationalism. In Indonesia, it's Islamic nationalism. And in India, it's Hindu nationalism. And so it's this ethnic nationalism uh, that is uh, connected with the majority race, majority religion, uh, and uh, ma- and majority native population, which then this uh, uh, their the incitement is for xenophobia. Incitement is against uh, minority, and the great replacement that I was talking about this manufactured victimhood. Of the of the majority population, that very soon they are going to outnumber us. These minorities and immigrants are going to outnumber us. This great replacement theory. There are many right wing intellectuals now in France, for example, in the United States. They are talking about some very soon uh, th- that we are all going to be outnumbered. In India, the Hindu nationalists say we are going to be outnumbered by Muslims, hmm. even though Muslim is only about 14%, 15% of the population. So this exaggerated fear of great replacement is playing a very important role. And so, so and, and people therefore believe that it's the democracies in which they live that are allowing for the growth of what they're perceiving as a cultural threat. And so, therefore, they are rejecting those democracies. Yes. In fact, they associate um, what they call appeasement of these minorities and immigrants by the liberals. And the liberals use this liberal democracy, uh, the forms of liberal democracy, to, quote-unquote, appease uh, these groups. Mm-hmm. So they are turning against liberalism. So essentially, uh, for example, in Hungary, Viktor Orban talks about illiberal democracy, which in my judgment is an oxymoron. Uh, you know, democracy cannot be liberal. Um, but uh, so essentially he's saying he's having democracy, which means he's being elected by people, but he's giving up on liberalism because liberals uh, are too... Uh, are to, uh, appeasing the minorities and the immigrants. Okay, so Professor, let me ask you this. I mean, I was think, I'm thinking about this especially in the U.S. context because when you say they're turning against liberalism, and I want to emphasize that's with a lowercase l, right? <laughs> right. Uh, liberalism right. as a concept in terms of um, how people may govern themselves. But, right. but you know, okay, so the, the form of diverse democracy that the United States is today um, right. When it comes to, of course, human history, it's extremely new, right? We're not talking about the democracies of Athens or Rome no, no, or no, the no, Magna no. Carta. We're not even talking about the same democracy uh, that was written into the Constitution uh, in right. the 18th century. We're talking about the real realization, I'd say especially after the, the enfranchisement of women and, and the Civil Rights Act, that has really only had a chance to thrive for less than a hundred years in this country. Oh sure. So Even... so what I wonder is what I wonder is are we seeing uh is the cultural insecurity that you're describing um the expression of something fundamentally human. I mean, is it tribalism that simply will not accept 
the uh, the notion of a diver- of a truly diverse democracy? No, it is a kind of tribalism, and tribalism taking different form. That's why I'm connecting nationalism. Yeah. But but mind you, this is not the only kind of nationalism. Uh, I I may come to uh, other forms of nationalism when you discuss what to do about mm. this, but. This is an ethnic form of nationalism, and and, and it's quite often it's a very poisonous form of nationalism because it thrives on hate, etc. And the reason why liberal uh, liberal forms of democracy are important is that liberal forms of democracy create safeguards for minority rights, mm-hmm. and that's what the the majority this majoritarianism is against. Well, I guess what I'm at, the reason why I'm asking that is why has there been such a again looking over the course of human history, why has there been such a a recent spasmodic backlash against diverse democracies, I mean particularly in the US? Is it because uh, the uh, an ideal diverse democracy is trying to push back against something that is fundamentally human that we want to identify with that like wants to identify like and sees all other as as, as a threat? Yes, uh, sure. Uh, but I think it's more complicated than that because, uh, and that's where I want to say, I don't want to say it's only cultural insecurity. Cultural right. insecurity is intertwined with economic insecurity. Mm. So when there's an impression that uh, the the jobs might are going away uh, and you, it's easier to blame foreigners like Chinese are taking away our jobs, yeah. or it's easy to blame uh, immigrants. They are taking our jobs, even though in reality, immigrants are not taking the actual jobs that the rest of the population are doing. Uh, but it is easy to blame others. For, for, for example, a large part of economists will tell you that a large part of the job losses in the United States and Europe are due to automation. But you will not hear about that as much because automation is 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 a force which is a kind of inexorable technological force. Uh, it's much easier to blame others, blame foreigners, blame minorities, blame immigrants. Uh, so that's where the whole discussion turns there. Mm. So it's a, it's a combination of economic insecurity and cultural insecurity. I in my book I talk about both. Uh, and 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 uh, and and whenever there is anxiety, and by the way, this anxiety is not just about yours yourself, your jobs. Anxiety about your children. Maybe yes. I may have a secure job today, but I'm worried about when my children go go up, grow up. Will they have jobs? So this is a really important point because there's been polling in the in the past, and you're familiar with this, of course, Professor Bardon, that shows that especially yes. in the United States, one of the main drivers of uh, one of the drivers of people who supported Donald Trump in 2016 um, was that they were concerned that their children wouldn't have the same quality of life that they would. I mean, so right. so so wh- again, whether or not that's true, that is the perception that they have that opportunities were being taken away from from. From their children, but so I see what you're saying though about the the sort of intertwining of uh, economic uh, economic security and uh, and cultural insecurity. And, and what happens is that even if my children's jobs may be taken up by robots, it's much easier for politicians to divert the anxiety to foreigners, to immigrants, 
to minorities. Right. So that's where the cultural issue becomes uh, prominent. Well, because these are the very politicians that dismantled the institutions that were protecting people beforehand, that were giving exactly. them economic security. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So what, what about the, I mean, what institutions in the United States would you say were particularly weakened that contributed to this terrible feedback loop? I think uh, it's certainly uh, not just in the United States all over. It's this liberal institutions um, of representative government uh, are not working well uh, in the sense that large numbers of the people have the impression that those processes, uh, what we know as the due process and the other very slow things that get slowed down, things get go on being discussed for long. Uh, judiciary takes a long time to come to a decision and so on. So these are too slow. So these demagogues tell them, look, uh, we have an instant solution for this. We're going to solve for it. So they're creating this impatience with long-standing uh, um, democratic processes because processes are slow processes people get easily impatient with, but that's part of democracy. Otherwise, you cannot protect people's rights, particularly minority rights. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what is happening. This, so in a sense, demo, democracy is degenerating into majoritarianism. Right. And, and uh, when a majority dominates and gets, uh, gets away with uh, liberal safeguards, uh, which essentially slows down processes. The demagogues uh, give you seductive, solu seductive solutions that we are going to solve all these problems, even though these are ultimately vacuous promises, but people go for them. So you also talk about how um, the decline of labor unions, for example, it contributes yes. to the kind of insecurity that can then Specific and again in the I'm keeping my mind in the U.S. context here right. uh, that uh, the kind of uh, economic insecurity that it, especially for white working class Americans can turn right. into these the cultural insecurity. Right. In fact, I would say that the trade unions here, uh, and that's in fact I would say it's ultimately part of the solution. Trade unions over time had declined, and with the decline of trade unions, uh, they used to be. Trade unions used to be a major force, countervailing force against the rise of inequalities, rise of insecurities. Uh, job losses were resisted by the trade unions and so on. But trade unions had a larger role. Trade unions are not just uh, wage bargaining institutions. In my judgment, trade unions in many countries, certainly in Europe and also in the United States, are also cultural institutions in the sense that Trade unions provide an anchor for workers. It's a, it's a shared identity. You feel pride in your work, etc. So with the decline of trade unions, that cultural anchor is missing. And, the, and it creates a cultural void in which the then demagogues put in the other issues like uh, culture wars that, that come in. The trade unions also do something else. And that's, I think, I emphasize in my book is that, and this is very recent, going back to what you're asking what happened more recently, social media, the influence of social media. Social media uh, uh, amplifies the anxieties and creates an echo chamber 
of uh, extremism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, here, trade unions could play a role because if workers were anchored into these trade unions, then trade unions could tell you, uh, tell a worker what is fake and what is not. At the moment, they're being swept away by these uh, fake things that the demagogues tell them. Uh, uh, and and so, to me, the trade unions have, a, have an economic role um, in doing something about that economic insecurity, but trade unions have a very important cultural role. Okay, but in this country right now, the, the, the nation's labor unions are largely seen as aligned with the Democratic Party, right? And not, yes. Which is not the party... Well, most I, I will say this: it's the Republican Party that's uh, that's amplifying the cultural insecurity problem here in the United States. So, but but for as long as the unions are seeing as aligned with the Democrats, how can they expand their reach and their influence uh, to make progress in sort of um, reducing the the cultural insecurities? Well, trade unions are you know, I think United States is probably among rich countries the most anti-union countries, hostility to unions. This is not true in many European countries. But uh, the European example shows to the United States that trade unions can provide you the anchor that I'm talking about. And this Republicans very soon will feel that because now, strangely, I mean, it sounds paradoxical, that... United States, I, I saw the piece of data the other day. If you take the United States, the poorest districts, they vote Republicans. If you take the richest districts, they vote um, Democrat, mm-hmm. by and large. Mm-hmm. So that, that tells you that the, there is a division within the, the, the working class. The, actually, what's happened um, is the, the more professional, more skilled workers um, they, uh, they, they are one side. On the other hand, more manual workers, blue-collar workers on the other. So that's a great division. And it is partly this division, which has, uh, which has this division of workers made workers' solidarity much more difficult. Right. A- and similarly, uh, we now know about the gig economy. And these are informal workers. They don't have benefits, unlike the more uh, organized, uh, more protected workers, uh, caregiving workers do not have uh, uh, benefits, do not have those protections. Well, but, but Professor, if I could just jump in here, I would actually say sure. that the the role, the diminished role of unions in the United States, uh, you know, uh, goes back, as, as you know, much, much farther than that. And, and to me, the irony is that um, you know, it, it's the Republican Party that did make it one of one of its major goals as weakening right. unions in this country for a couple of generations. I would say the Democratic Party, you know, Bill Clinton and thereafter didn't do much to to stop that, right, because of their it, belief it, in globalization. Um, right. But of course, the irony being that it's the same party, the GOP, that wanted to weaken unions that also is uh, is is amplifying the, the cultural security. So the very groups of white working class workers that lost their union grounding by virtue of Republican policies are still turning to the Republicans because of the cultural insecurity. So right, with that right. thought in mind, we just have to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, Professor Barden, I want to talk with you about what do we do moving forward to, to strengthen and protect democracies uh, in light of this cultural insecurity. So hang on for just a moment. We'll be back. This is On Point. On Point. 
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And before we get much further, I want to say a special hello to listeners in Charlotte, North Carolina, who can now hear On Point on 90.7 WFAE. This is our first day on with you in Charlotte, and we are honored to join you on the airways in North Carolina. So great to have you, WFAE. And so for listeners in Charlotte and wherever else you hear us, I want to give you a heads up uh, for something we're working on a little bit later this week, and it has to do with health care, preventative care specifically, because the Affordable Care Act required that many forms of preventative care get fully covered. That is, you know, screenings for cancer, diabetes, uh, HIV prevention drugs, STDs, things like that. And no-cost preventative care was required, as I said, under the Affordable Care Act, uh, Care Act. But a recent federal ruling struck that down, struck down no-cost preventative care. So we want to hear from you. Do you regularly get those screenings? Did it make a difference in your life? If you're a healthcare provider, what impact could the uh, striking down of no-cost preventative care have on your patients? Let us know. You can record a message on our Vox Pop app. If it's not already on your phone, just search for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps, or you can call us at 617-353-0683. Again, 617-353-0683. We're working on that for a show later this week. Today, we are speaking with Professor Prana Bardhan. He's a professor at the University of California and author of A World of Insecurity, Democratic Disenchantment in Rich and Poor Countries. So, Professor Bardhan, I've been waiting to ask you this question <laughs> all hour because, you know, in the United States, uh, I, I, I see that there is a wholesale rejection amongst Democratic leaders to accept the, the reality and perhaps even the importance of the kind of cultural insecurity you're talking about. Because, you know, um, unfortunately, she'll never live this down. But when Hillary Clinton you know, use that famous, infamous phrase about the basket of deplorables. Right. What she was essentially saying was, call it whatever you want, cultural insecurity, et cetera, but it's racism. And the Democratic Party was going to reject racism, wasn't even going to take, you know, its causes seriously. It wasn't worth the time of day. And that's not the America that she or the Democrats wanted to lead. I've got to ask you, but in the U.S., Perhaps she wasn't wrong to say that because, I mean, how do you how do you engage with cultural insecurity in this country without um, uh, without providing credence to some the racism which backs it? 
Yes, I mean, obviously nobody should support that that kind of racism. But at the same time, if you take a kind of holier-than-thou attitude that they are the racists and, and uh, you know, uh, so, uh, and we are superior, it's going to uh, be completely counterproductive. We have to think about uh, why uh, anxieties turn in that direction and in what way we can, uh, you see, going back to something that I was discussing before of trade unions, Trade unions, one of the major cultural, uh, the one major cultural role they played was they used to tame and transcend these nativist passions, these xenophobic passions uh, and the uh, anti-minority passions. So trade unions provided that uh, that uh, safeguard. Uh, and, and because the trade unions have declined, uh, these other things have come in. So it's not that Things are kind of static. The, the people are racist, that's it. You dismiss them. No, I think you can try to uh, encourage people in directions in which uh, you can show that this is not the only way to look at a problem. So let me give you, uh, I actually, uh, since you've already asked me uh, what is to be done, I'm going to think talk about some cultural policies mm -hmm. and some economic policies. Um, let me first talk about some economic policies which might reduce some of this anxiety. Uh, I think it's very important to do something about, it's very difficult to do in the United States, but other countries have done it, uh, is about uh, funding of elections. At the moment, it's dominated by big corporate lobbies, and big corporate lobbies um, uh, influencing essentially many of the, not just the elections, but laws, the way the laws are formulated, etc. Right. So this is the point at, at which people are yelling at their radio saying, you're finally talking about Citizens United, right? So, <laughs> but, but really, so yes. the, the influence of private money in, in, in public yes. elections, yes. So there's a lot of things to learn from how other, even Canada, even uh, in, the, uh, in Europe, Sweden, uh, Belgium, uh, France, uh, they uh, Germany, they have had public funding of elections, um, and I think it's a lot of things to learn uh, from this. It, I know uh, Supreme Court is a big obstacle there in the United States, but if there is a movement, Supreme Court, I don't, I'm not necessarily talking about uh, just today's Supreme Court. Over the years, Supreme Court has responded, uh, even though slowly to public opinion. So I think opinions have to be generated about public funding of elections, at least to, to some extent. Secondly, I'm talking about, still talking about economic policies, anti-monopoly policy. Mm -hmm. uh, anti-monopoly policies are not nearly bad from the point of view of equity. It's bad from, from the worker's point of view because the when the monop there are monopolies they they have they are the only hirers so they create all kinds of restrictive laws like the non compete laws reg uh, non compete clauses in labor contracts and things like that so anti monopoly policies are very important and i think that, that way uh, biden administration is trying to do something about that in terms of anti monopoly another issue would be the, like uh, do something about uh, taxing the rich in terms of wealth taxation, so on. But then going back to trade unions, to me, it's very important, not even economically. 
And this is something that came up in the presidential primary in 2020. If you remember, Elizabeth Warren, one of the issues that she brought out, one of course was wealth taxation, but more than that, she talked about um, improving the voice of workers in corporate governance. Um, and this is, I think, an important issue that trade unions and, and labor representation in the governing board of companies, to me, is extremely important. The country from which we, one can learn this is Germany. Germany has long history of what they call works councils. Today, in Germany, if you take the largest companies in the governing board of the largest company, the very influential governing boards, half of the governing board are representation of workers. As a result, more women have come up in the governing boards. Now, why is that important? Economically, it is important because then this governing body, where labor is represented in a big way, can influence where will the jobs be, uh, where will the company relocate, outsource. Those are important decisions, deciding about the job losses for the local workers. So those decisions, in that those decisions, labor can play a very important role. Okay, let me just jump in here, Professor, if I can, for a second. So, so making elections uh, less uh, manipulated by private money, anti-monopoly policy, uh, labor unions, uh, uh, increasing taxation on the rich and, and the wealthy. These all sound like sensible economic um, uh, economic uh, targets, to put it that way, uh, or ideas. But, you know, all of a sudden it occurred to me, in places like you mentioned Germany, which uh, had, I believe, at the end of last year, December of last year, they had to actually foil a right wing coup on the German government because the, the right wing is rising there, the far right wing. And then taking us back to Sweden, which um, I guess would have met some of these measures already in place because their, in, their economic inequality is not as large as it is here in the United States. As we, we started the show talking about how a party that was founded by actual Nazis or neo-Nazis is on the rise there. Yeah. So even with these um, economic solutions, uh, structural solutions, that wouldn't have an effect in a place like Sweden. No, um, the, I, I think one should have some sense of proportion. Yeah. Yes, uh, that's the reason why in my book I'm emphasizing both economic security and cultural insecurity. Yeah. In the United States, I think both economic and cultural are much more important. In, in Europe, economic security is quite often taken care of, not fully taken care of, um, particularly in continental Europe, uh, uh, the economic security of workers is more than in the United States. And therefore, the cultural issues become more prominent. Mm -hmm. uh, but in, in the United States, both issues are, uh, are, are equally important. That's why I was talking about the intertwining of the yeah. cultural and, uh, and, and the economic. And, and let me then, this is an opportunity for me to come to the cultural policies and the, uh, I think in cultural policies, uh, going back to trade unions, trade unions are not just economic wage bargaining institutions. They are cultural institutions, as I've already emphasized. Right. And that's where the trade unions should play a very important role. In uh, and, uh, and the expression that I've used before is taming and transcending some of these xenophobic, some of these uh, pressures 
some of these uh, anti-minority uh, feelings, anti-immigration uh, feelings. And let me uh, there go into the, the one of the things that all these demagogues use is some kind of nationalism. We already talked about religious nationalism, but it's not just religious nationalism. Um, in fact, I remember a speech by uh, Barack Obama, I think it's 2009. He said that it's the strength of the United States that we are not a Christian nation. It, the strength of the United States is that our nationalism is based on values that are enshrined in the Constitution. Uh, in fact, if you remember uh, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, the first sentence is, is a nation conceived in liberty. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not nation conceived in religion. Um, and and this, is, this is true uh, in other countries also. Now, so, uh, and let me now talk about other forms of nationalism. It's, it's not well, actually, Professor. Before that, um, mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. I'm just keep, sure. I'm mindful of, of of the time that we have left. Just a, just sure. a few minutes, and I heard your gentle chiding about me not having a sense of uh, proportion. Um, but it's my job to to ask questions that push things into sharp relief, so that we can explore sure. the, those nuances. Sure, sure, um, sure. But but I guess what I keep bringing it back to the United States because that's where that's where we are. That's where we're living, and it you know and, it's it's the and, and, and that's where the economic and cultural insecurity are both important and kind of intertwined. Yes. So let, so emphasize. to that point, obviously on the economic side, um, and I, I'm looking at the Democratic Party here right now because of the Hillary Clinton that I, uh, quote that I right. shared earlier. Right. They've been right. doing a lot. The Biden administration has been trying to do a lot on the economic side. But I wonder, right. you know, what would you, how would you advise Democratic Party leaders who seem to actually be kind of powerless to, or they haven't yet come up with any kind of counter messaging against the sort of naked, like white Christian nationalism that's coming out of the Republican Party and Fox News now. But how would you advise them to take this cultural insecurity seriously and engage with it such that 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 the intertwining can actually happen in 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 policy. Well, that's that's the reason why I think that's the role, Magna, you are playing. Uh, create public opinion that these issues are important. I think Democrats now gradually realizing that the cultural issues are important, but. One cannot just, uh, uh, these are not at the individual level. That's why you need community organizations. And trade union to me is a, is a civic organization, is a, is a community organization. And it's not just trade unions. Trade union is a major one. But I think locally, uh, in, in terms of neighborhood associations, women's groups, you know, I think in the, in, in the what enriches democracy are these intermediate institutions, what I'm calling intermediate institutions, intermediate between the state and the citizen. Mm -hmm. In the intermediate level, um, you know, whether it's parent-teachers associations, neighborhood associations, uh, trade unions to me is a very important part of those intermediate institutions. Um, 
and uh, and at these at these levels and and de democrats if they really take these issues seriously have to energize these local community and civic organizations so you're saying they and should take it seriously should take it seriously and and i'm saying the, energize these associations and organizations. Now, I know the Biden administration is pro-trade unions, but I think it's, it has to be much more energetic because trade union is a front which where you can uh, bring those two issues together, the economic insecurity issue and the cultural insecurity mm. issue. Okay, so we have one minute left, Professor. Give yeah. me your vision of a healthy... Uh, form of American nationalism that embraces the diverse democracy that I still believe we must struggle towards. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, as, as you're saying, I think ethnic nationalism, which these other groups uh, usually emphasize, the populist demagogues, as opposed to that, there is a civic nationalism. And to me, it's a great thing that United States, in its origin, even the founders did not go for Christian nationalism. I mean, the founders had uh, they, they, they had a lot of problems. Some of them had slaves, etc. But they did not go uh, ideally for conceptually uh, for uh, Christian nationalism. I think that's extremely important. And this is what Barack Obama in two thousand nine, that speech that I quoted, exactly emphasizes that. And Europe has suffered from it. Take the case of Germany that I mentioned before. Their nationalism was ethnic nationalism. And today they have suffered enormously. The whole world has suffered enormously from that. I think we have to turn our nationalism to these civic forms and based on those local civic organizations that I've already talked about. Well, Pranab Bardhan is a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. His book is A World of Insecurity, Democratic Disenchantment in Rich and Poor Countries. And we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Professor Bardhan, thank you so much for coming back Welcome. on the show. And thank you for, for, for being with here again, being with us well, again. <laughs> Sorry. Welcome. Thank I, you. I took a week off and everyone can tell I'm out of practice. But that's it for today. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 